let's rethink the performance foot. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Almost as perfect as the intensive 12 went this weekend. It was fabulous. Had a great group of people in there. Um, the neural coffee was flowing. Questions were great. The model evolved. We talked about things that we'd never talked about before at any previous intensive. So that was really, really cool. Um, I am looking forward to intensive 13 uh, so much. We had about, I think we had about five weeks. We're about five weeks out from that. So again, looking forward to that. Um, we'll probably get one done in August. I'll let you guys know about the dates on that one. Um, quick housekeeping, IFAST University, we have a Q&A call on Zoom at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, so don't forget about that. If you are not signed up for IFAST University, I suggest you do it very, very quickly so you can join us on that call. Um, so over the weekend, obviously very busy with the intensive, um, dug into the Q&A email and there was a foot question in there. And we talked about feet over the weekend, so I thought it'd be really cool to, to do an encore presentation of, of the performance foot video that we did way back in November. Very, very useful in regards to perspective and some, some really good information to, to sort of get you to look at feet just a little bit differently. So we're gonna cut away to that here in just a second. If you would like to participate in a 15 minute consultation or you have a question, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and leave me a question there, or put 15-minute consultation in the subject line, and we'll arrange a call at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Monday. Um, we will cut away to the, to the performance foot video here in just a second, and I will see you tomorrow. Friday with a little bit of perspective on the, the performance-related foot, because I think it's still a little bit of a challenge for people because of some of the biases that have been created over time and some of the perspectives as to what constitutes a, a, a good performance foot um, versus one that, that is interference. And so I, I want us to look at this thing, thing differently. Now, let me preface everything that I'm about to say is that performance is multifactorial. There are so many potential influences here. Um, it's not just a foot thing. Um, the foot is one part and but we're going to talk about it in isolation to give you a little bit of perspective so the things that you also probably need to consider is like okay what kind of an archetype are we dealing with what are some of the proportional issues uh, in, in physical structure so the size of your thorax relative to the size of your pelvis is an influence in, in performance your proportions as far as you know the, the length of your axial skeleton to the length of the appendicular skeleton is is an influence your force to weight ratio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so again, let's, let's keep this in perspective, okay? The first thing we wanna do then is we wanna review uh, a little bit about <clears throat> the simplified foot model, okay? So we're gonna go through the, the, the phases of, of uh, this foot position. So our traditional heel rocker, would represent this, this early propulsive phase. So as I bring the medial calcaneus to the ground and I get the forefoot to the ground and the toes are extended, the tibia is still behind the foot. So this is an ER position. So I still have an arch and I've got an ER tibia relative to the foot. And so that's my early propulsive foot. As I move through middle, this is where the arch is going to move down towards the ground. So this is your traditional pronation. This is tibial internal rotation. So this is a, a lower arch. Now, here's the, here's the key element of this that I 
I want you to understand is that the maximum force into the ground is at maximum pronation. And where that is, max, pro, max propulsion is just as that medial calcaneus re-breaks from the ground. And so this is actually a low position of the arch because right after that, I'm gonna get a bunch of concentric orientation on the plantar aspect of the foot. This is what they traditionally call that windlass effect. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna crank that sucker back into an externally rotated position, right? And that is traditionally considered this, this high propulsive foot, but the, the, the force application came just prior to that. And so this is the demonstration of what happens after that force production. And so when we talk about a performance related foot, this is why we're gonna see lower arches on a lot of these really, really high performers. And you, so people look at these feet and they go, oh, these are really crappy feet because pronation has always been described as this accommodative foot position, which is not untrue, but the highest force production also happens in maximum pronation. So that's where our max propulsion is. So when we look at feet like this, it can be a little confusing as to why we would see the, these, these low arches. But what they're actually doing is it's a time saver that allows these athletes to get to maximum propulsion much faster than, than what we would consider our, our non-athletic population. And so that's, that's what they're representing. Now, we've got some subtle differences between these, these low arched feet as well that we can, we can talk about. So if we have um, someone that is closer to maximum propulsion than say another athlete, what you're typically, typically gonna see under these circumstances is you'll see, if we were making a comparison in performance, we would see a better broad jump than a better, than, than vertical jump. So it doesn't mean they're bad vertical jumpers, it just means that as a representation of, of where they perform the best, they are better at horizontal projection because they are so much closer to, to maximum propulsion than, than um, another athlete would be. And so they'll have the quicker first step, they'll have great acceleration. But what you're gonna measure, um, if you you're to throw them on the table, they're gonna be biased more towards external rotation. So remember, as I break that foot, I get this concentric orientation that's gonna, gonna move me quicker um, towards ER. So what happens is, is they have a reduced yielding strategy, which again, that dampens their ability to produce a vertical jump, but it also improves their horizontal projection. They're gonna have limited hip flexion, they'll probably have limited straight leg raise, etc. that's associated with this external rotation bias and a reduced yielding strategy. If I move you back just slightly from, from max propulsion, I've now just increased the amount of time that you have between where you are um, as a representation of your center of gravity and maximum propulsion. So in doing so now, I've actually increased the time that you have to produce that yielding strategy. These are the people that will have a better vertical jump than broad jump as a representation, but they're gonna be a little bit slower in regards to change of direction, but they'll get, they're gonna have better top speed because their vertical projections are better. They're gonna have slightly less external rotation bias, so they're gonna have a little bit more of an internal rotation um, capability than, than say our guys that are better horizontal projector, pr projectors. And so um, they'll have a little bit better hip flexion, a little bit, a little bit better straight leg raise. 
So if we look at a couple representations of feet, I'll try to show you show you the, the subtle little difference. So what we have right there is a pair of feet that can run a 4-4-40. So he is, he is very, very good at acceleration. He is very, very good at, at, at change of direction. So this is a Division I football player, and, and he played four years of, of, of high-level Division I uh, uh, football. This other representation right here, it looks very, very similar, but this is a better vertical jumper than a horizontal projector. And so this is actually a very, very high-level basketball player. And so he's got a better vertical jump than, than horizontal projection. And, and so again, subtle differences as to how close these guys are to, to their maximum propulsion phase. Now, let me show you another pair of feet that don't jump very well and not very fast, but also on a very high level basketball player. So this, this individual has a much higher arch. He is, is positioned much more into an earlier phase. So he's a little bit slower. He doesn't jump as high and he's not as fast. It doesn't mean that he can't play high level basketball. It just means that he's going to rely on other things. This person also happens to be exceptionally tall. And so again, we have all of these representations. So again, everything's multifactorial from a performance perspective. There are many different different ways that, that these people can perform. But what we're, we want to start to think about is like, okay, I have these different feet. They're going to be better at different things. And, and it is one element that supports this, this high level of performance. Now, let's take this into the clinic. So I can take these same concepts um, and I can start to look at my, my quote unquote normal people um, from a very, very similar perspective. So when I see a pair of feet that um, might be uh, more pronated, so the arch is lower to the ground, I might have this person that is struggling with gravity. And so they're in a, in a situation where they're constantly producing a higher force into the ground because they're just not managing gravity as well. He will have the compensatory strategies that we'll typically see. He'll have a lot of concentric muscle orientation and therefore a lot of limitations in range of motion. Under those circumstances, we probably want to move him away from maximum propulsion to give him the capacity to move through his extra rotation to intra rotation strategies. And this allows him to move away from the ground to reduce the concentric orientation and then restore a lot more of the of the active range of motion that he's missing. So again, it's just a matter of perspective of what we're looking at, but feet are always a great representation of this. They're very confirming as far as some of your measures that you're gonna find um, on up the the, uh, the chain, so to speak. So, so some of your top-down influences are gonna be represented in the feet. If you can't manage this from a top-down influence, then it maybe it is time to do something about this at the foot. So maybe this is your manual therapies for the foot. Maybe this is selecting activities that are specifically designed to, to uh, improve the representation of sensation from the ground up. Maybe this is the person that you put in, in an orthotic as a, as a solution to give them the capacity of adaptability. Performance is an intentional reduction of adaptability to create a higher level of, of output. Whereas when we're trying to make people more adaptable, such as the, the rehab situation, now we need to take away some of that, that reduction in adaptability, restore it to give them the ability to rest, reduce that, um, reduce concentric orientation, and then restore ranges of motion. So hopefully that just gives you a little bit of perspective on what we're talking about when we're talking about the performance-related foot and how it might be related um, to, to what we're measuring on the table or what we're seeing um, on the court or in the field. Yesterday we talked about the low arch performance foot. 
Apparently it's turning into foot week. We're gonna talk about the higher arch representations. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, I had a great IFAS University Q&A call yesterday. If you weren't there, you missed out. Um, I would suggest that you try to join us next time. If you're not on IFAS University, please get signed up at ifasuniversity.com. Okay, yesterday we talked about the low arch performance foot. Apparently it's turning into foot week. We're gonna talk about the higher arch representations. And so, remember we have two positions of the foot where we're gonna see this, this higher arch. So in our early propulsive foot, where the toes are in line with that first metatarsal, so this is the, the first contact with the first metatarsal medial heel. This is where we start to superimpose internal rotation on top of the external rotation field. So we have an externally rotated foot, but this is our first representation of IR. And so what we're gonna see mostly in the hip, we're gonna see a preservation of a straight leg race, we're gonna see access to early hip flexion, and we're gonna see a partial availability of internal rotation up up into the hip and so when we look at the later representation so this is where the heel is is off the ground we're moving back into er but now we've got extended toes under this circumstance this is where we're going to see all those measures start to drop off so we're going to lose straight leg raise we're going to lose early hip flexion and we're going to start to lose internal rotation and so this this is really important in regards to when we see this this high arched foot because we've got a couple representations we've got to figure out where people are so we're going to cut away to that video here in just a second if you would like to ask me a question go to askbillhartman at gmail.com askbillhartman at gmail.com if you'd like a 15 minute consultation make sure you put 15 minute consultation in the subject line and we'll arrange that at our mutual convenience all right we're going to cut away to the uh the youtube video um, where we talked about this, this high arch foot representation, we see some compensatory strategies and some strategies on how to deal with that. Um, if you're uh, interested in, in, in catching up on the videos, they're all up on YouTube, so go there. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Um, and then I had a great mentorship call almost immediately after that, and that's where today's Q&A question is gonna come from because it was a really neat, really neat presentation a little bit off the beaten path and, and um, initially a little bit confusing as, as to what um, my mentee was really looking at. And then it just, it, it, it becomes clear once you sort of put the pieces together. So we're gonna use that, uh, like I said, to drive to today's Q and A. So let me give you this scenario. Uh, the confusing presentation was that the client that he was working with uh, had a limited straight, straight leg raise, limited hip flexion, limited hip IR, but a really high arch in the foot, which, which again, that looks like a combination of a, a very late propulsive strategy in, in the, the pelvis and the hip, but an early uh, propulsive foot. And so again, there's a little bit of confusion there, but, but if we break this down, there was one uh, telling representation in the foot that, that sort of gives it away as, as to what's really going on. First and foremost, let's talk a little bit about airplane wing physics because if we can understand a little bit about an airplane wing so bear with me here if we understand a little bit about an airplane wing we're going to understand a little bit more about an arch so that the way that an airplane wing works is as the as the air passes over the airplane wing it creates a low pressure above the wing and a high pressure below the wing and that's what creates a lift 
if we look at the arch of the foot, we're going to see a very similar representation here. So if I look at my early propulsive foot, I have an arch. And so what I actually have is I have a lot of concentric orientation underneath the foot in this early propulsive strategy. So this is a concentric yielding strategy on the bottom of the foot, which means that I have this eccentric strategy on top. So eccentric is high volume, low pressure. Underneath we have concentric orientation, which is low volume, high pressure. So this is literally just like an airplane wing. And so again, low pressure on top, high pressure on the bottom. And that's what's gonna help me maintain that arch. As I move through the three rockers, so, so I have my early propulsive phase, which is my, my heel rocker, and then my ankle rocker. So to have a normal ankle rocker, what I have to be able to do is I have to be able to flip-flop the pressures. So I have to be able to create the eccentric orientation on the bottom, so the low pressure strategy here, and the high pressure on top. And so if I can't create the, the transition in pressures, I can't translate the ankle over the foot. And so it looks like I might be able to, might be stuck here. Now, let's go back to our initial representation here. We have somebody that is way forward. We have, we have posterior lower compression in the pelvis. We have posterior lower compression in the thorax. And we have a, we have a foot that looks like a high pressure foot uh, underneath. Well, what we have to understand is, is that we, as we go through ankle rocker and we pick up this heel, so as I move into late propulsion, I'm moving back towards where I'm gonna translate the tibia posteriorly again, and I'm gonna create that, what you'll look in the literature will say the windlass effect, where the heel comes up, I'm recapturing concentric orientation underneath, so I'm creating that high pressure strategy underneath the foot. And under normal circumstances, I would have toe extension. But if I take this foot and I jam the heel down, you can see that I have this massive amount of concentric orientation here. If the heel is down and I keep the tibia over the foot, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get a reversal of the, of the effect on the, the concentric orientation on the bottom of the foot. So here we actually get to use dead guy anatomy for a second, which is kind of fun. So the dead guys, they pulled on the, on the muscles from, from this end and they go, oh, I got toe flexors. So what I end up with is a foot that looks like that. So we have a high arch in a foot, we have a low pressure strategy on top of the foot, and then we have toes that are, that are flexed at the end. And so what that tells us is we had a foot that was trying to pick up the heel into a late propulsive strategy, but I couldn't get the heel up because of, of the center of gravity being too far back, and so I just curled my toes under. So we actually do have a foot that matches the propulsive strategy above. So what we're gonna see, we'll see this on a lot of folks that, that are really driven by compressive strategies and, and really, really strong concentric orientation. So um, again, we can pick on powerlifters a lot because that they drive a tremendous amount of these compressive strategies to lift very, very heavy weights. So you'll see like the toed out kind of a, a position. You'll see the, the powerlifter with a lot of compressive strategy and very, very high arches, almost to the point where they can't even get their big toes down to the ground but they're gripping the floor uh, with the end of those their toes. So the simple strategy is to say, okay, well, let's just move you back towards this, this normal middle propulsion, which would be great and all fine and wonderful if it's doable. So it's very, very difficult to do this because of the amount of concentric orientation that you have um, all the way up, up the chain, so to speak. So the solution here then 
is to take them all the way back to early propulsion because then we don't have to force them out of this concentric orientation right away. So this is gonna be situations where we might start with um, an anti-gravity situation. So we put them on their back, we put them in hook line, and we can drop that foot down into that early propulsive strategy with, without a lot of gravity on it. And that might be a solution for us if we have enough hip flexion available to us. If we don't, then we, we drop them further towards the traditional zero degrees of hip extension. We keep them in a slightly um, uh, early propulsive strategy, foot on the wall, but, but hip, ex, hip, hip closer to extension as represented here. Um, and that might be the way, the way that we start them. If we can, if we can move them into the gym, then this is gonna be where we do all, all of our heels elevated activities. So the heels elevated is gonna move us back towards a fairly early propulsive strategy. We're gonna get that posterior expansion that, that we're looking for. That, and then we can slowly start to move them, them back forward through a normal uh, middle propulsive strategy. So what we'll do is we'll do like maybe heels elevated toe touch, heels elevated squat might follow that. And then maybe we can move into uh, split stance orientation as we start to capture more and more uh, hip flexion. Um, so that might be a, a, a front foot heel elevated split squat um, and then moving them towards a normal front foot elevated squ split squat. And eventually um, a, a shallow stance split squat that allows a lot of tibial translation over the foot. So we're, again, so we're, we're re-educating this, this middle propulsive strategy where we can go from the, the high pressure arch to the low pressure arch back to the high pressure arch. Um, in a worst case scenario, um, where we have a lot of anterior, posterior compressive strategies, what we may need to do is do some of these things in, in isolation. So we got a little, little video here that, that should be playing if my technology is effective, where you can actually see them pulling the, the tibia forward. So they're learning how to translate the tibia using the, the anterior compartment, moving from eccentric orientation to concentric orientation to go from the, the high pressure arch to low pressure arch. Um, and so again, you can use this. This is also a great way to recapture your internal rotations all the way up the chain, um, a little hint for you there. So I hope this is useful for you. Again, it's just a little bit of, of pressure related relationships through the foot. This is also gonna help you sort of diagnose what kind of, a, what kind of an orthotic you might need, what kind of a shoe you might need. Um, that's a different story for a different day. Bilateral symmetrical exercises by design stop rotation. So they are for max propulsion. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. So today is Wednesday. That means tomorrow's Thursday, which means 6 a.m. tomorrow morning, coffee and coaches conference call. Uh, please join us for that great group of people great questions always got new people coming on so uh, this thing is growing and I'm having a blast doing it so we're gonna keep doing it so again please join us for that this week has been sort of about the foot and we talked about early and late phases of propulsion so why not capture middle today so we're gonna talk a little bit about middle propulsion today a little bit about max I got two segments for you um, that we've done in the past one was actually a conversation with um, Drew and Dusty Keel, the quarterback docs. And I got to hang out with Drew for a few days over the weekend at the intensive. So um, we had a great time there. But this was a question in regards to some rotational athletes and how we want to influence the, the 
external rotation capabilities, middle propulsive capabilities of these athletes by exercise selection. So I think it'll be a very useful uh, Q&A for you. And then we slide into a max propulsion question um, that we've answered in the past. Again, that goes into the details uh, of that. So again, really good Q&As for you uh, for this week. And if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. If you have any other questions, go to the same email, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will try to answer those for you as well. All right, everybody have a great Wednesday, and I'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. If, if I'm teaching a young quarterback, though, because one thing that I, I love about what you teach too is this idea of compression on one side and expansion on the other side through right. unilateral work. Right. So would I, if I was starting with a younger quarterback and I'm teaching him just the basic skills and he's, he's a novice in the weight room. So yeah. would I want to start as all individual de dependent, but would I want to start in that unilateral motion to have the expansion and compression to really to keep the ER fields that I want to keep throughout a period of time versus starting them on these, you know, these barbell lifts like a bench press, squat, deadlift, et cetera. Well, I, I you know, we're, again, I'm, trying, I'm trying to conserve. I'm trying to conserve that ER field as oh, long as I can while I build the IR, IR field, right? Correct. Correct. I mean, if, if, that's, if that's the representation, if that's the key performance indicator that we're going to monitor, so we're going to say, I, I need to maximize the external rotation, then, then anything that you do that's bilateral symmetrical has the lesser opportunity to create ER because it's going to be compressive on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I, when I, when I, when I, work on split orientations, so staggered stances, split orientations, that actually allows rotation to occur. Bilateral symmetrical exercises by design stop rotation. So they are for max propulsion. So when we go back to our propulsive phases, those exercises are designed to increase the force output at max propulsion. Mm -hmm. The other exercises that we do are to maintain the external rotation field that allows us to turn because that's why you do split stance activities in the first place is because they actually allow turning to take place. So all so your chops and your lifting and all those exercises yeah. that you do with the split, split orientation are designed to preserve external rotation. So a compressed athlete that we know is lacking some rotational rotation in areas where we want rotation would he ever perform an exercise with his foot flat would we want him to do sure. that if he if we knew he was compressed sure okay so why not would that be interference so because in my mind that's that's mid propulsion. me what okay it Okay, but, but in the split stance representation, look where the, look where the tibia is going to fall. So the tibia is going to fall behind or it's going to fall in front. And so now I'm playing with, with turns, right? What you might want to reorganize your little question is that, do I want their, their feet symmetrical? Yeah.
so Slasher says, assuming mid-propulsion falls in this propulsion phase, would mid be an exhalation bias? And I would say absolutely it is. Um, so as we as we move through the, the phase of propulsion, we're going to be landing in, in an ER inhalation strategy. We have to move through this middle phase of propulsion where we're going to increase that, that IR gradient, exhalation bias gradient. And then as we leave and, and we go into this late propulsive phase, we're going to re-externally rotate and we're going to move towards that inhalation bias again. Now, Slasher continues. He said, I would think that late propulsion would be a max propulsion stage of gate, and then that would be biased towards an exhalation moment. But based on, on the way that the propulsion is presented, it's an ER orientation. Is this correct? Um, or is it uh, externally rotating from a state of intra-rotating that gives me my late propulsion. Okay, so here's what we got to understand first and foremost, and I think this is the point of your your uh, confusion slasher, is that the the implication that the late propulsion is max propulsion, and that is not true. So what we want to do is we want to look at where maximum force is being produced, and so what we'll what we'll find is is that the maximum propulsion is going to occur as the calcaneus breaks from the ground. So, so if I have my foot, my reposition of the foot, so I land in early, I've got a high arch, I'm ER'd, I got a plantar flexed first ray, and as I move the, the tibia over the foot through this middle phase, the, the belief is that that is going to be the late stage of propulsion. Now, it's late in regards to how we designate the segmentation of uh, propulsion, but it's not the highest force. The highest force actually comes right as I break the calcaneus from the ground, because this is the point where, from a traditional standpoint, maximum pronation actually occurs. So, so here's what we want to do. We want to think about this from an evolutionary standpoint. Okay, So we were swimmers before we were walkers, and so our bias is towards inhalation to float. Okay and external rotation because we didn't have to produce force against, a, against a, a fixed point and so we used a lot of external rotation as swimmers. So just watch a frog swim and you'll get the idea. When we come up on land and we have to deal with gravity, this is where we started to learn how to internally rotate and, and produce force. So the point of maximum internal rotation is actually the point of maximum force production. And this occurs at the very end of this middle propulsive phase where pronation, traditional pronation is, is at a maximum. Where else will we see this? Well, we're gonna see this in um, any rotational sport where we have to stop our turn to create some sort of some sort of uh, forward momentum into an implement. So if I'm throwing a baseball, if I'm swinging a golf club, if I'm swinging a tennis racket, um, all of these these sports will demonstrate the, the same element where I will have a maximum propulsion where I actually have to stop motion and I translate that into the implement and that is the point of max propulsion during those activities. So if we think about a baseball pitcher, it's when the lead leg that's stepping towards home plate hits its point of maximum propulsion as, as they're landing through through the heel and because they never get towards this this end propulsive phase except through follow through which is actually an external rotation moment which is actually a re-inhale if you will um, as as they're following through so again maximum propulsion is not 
not in this late phase of the propulsive um, continuum, um, regardless of what activity that we're talking about, whether we're talking about gait or whether we're talking about sport, it's, it's actually at the point of the maximum pronation. That is an ir strategy. That is an exhalation bias. You're gonna to have to get AP expansion, but, but start driving like true internal rotation from, from proximal to distal. Ben Yanes. Morning, you? Bill. You're out How of, are you? Out of the car. Out of the car, waiting for the train, yeah. Um, so I have uh, an older brother who is currently dealing with a situation that one would normally diagnose or self-diagnose as carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, and he plays a lot of piano. He's a very good uh, piano player. Um, and obviously he loves to do it and yeah. something he wants to keep doing. So I've been trying to help him out um, because I think he, he went to his doctor and his doctor wants to start giving him steroids. And I was like, uh, really trying to want to, you know, want to stay away from that if he can. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not debilitating to the point where he can't play, obviously. Um, but it is getting to the point where, um, it is interfering with what he's doing. So from a conceptual standpoint, um, I kind of wanted to know how you viewed it from the lens of, of your model and then maybe some things to, to go after uh, or pay special attention to in regards to um, interventions. Yeah, so, so there's, a, there's a very, very good chance that he is lacking internal rotation in his, is it both sides? Both sides, more so the right. Okay. Yeah, so it's very likely that he is lacking the capacity to internally rotate proximally, right? So, so upper thorax, scap, shoulder are probably lacking a great deal of internal rotation. And so what you end up with is you end up, <clears throat> excuse me, you end up with a lot of uh, compensatory pronation um, strategy. So internal rotation strategies, because he's got to get his hands into a pronated position to play. Yep. Right. And so um, you'll get a whole bunch of muscle activity. So like pronator teres, pronator quadratus, um, you're going to get a bony twist in the radius. You're, you're potentially going to get a, a twist in the distal uh, humerus. Um, he's going to get a pronated hand relative to the radius. And so mm -hmm. all of those things reduce the amount of space. And if it's traditional median nerve symptoms that he's getting and not like a global thing, if it's median nerve symptoms, um, the, the way that the median nerve tracks through the arm, it's going to get compressed potentially in multiple places, not just here, okay? Yeah. This is a biggie. This is a biggie because the last compensatory strategy to get your hand into pronation is pronation of your hand. And so then, then that closes the, the, uh, the uh, carpal space there where, where mm -hmm. the carpal ligament goes across the hand. And that's why they do the surgery there. They, do, they just go in, they go, oh, we just go in there. We slice the hand open. We, we slice the, the carpal ligament. We sew it back up. Everything's all fine and wonderful. Um, but, but that's that's the basic issue that you run into typically with that type of a, of a situation is you've got just, you know, IR compensations all the way down, literally into the hand. And so you've got to kind of undo that. Okay, great.
great. Yeah, he, he's definitely one of those people. He's super, super narrow, really tall, and his shoulders are just pulled way, way forward, like no arm swing when he walks. So, yeah. So, I mean, and again, if he plays a lot, which is what it sounds like, like what he does. And then, so you think about um, his, his seating is going to be an issue, right? Um, and again, you, you've got to, you've got to restore most likely he's going to be an AP compressed guy. Okay. If he's, if he's tall and narrow, um, he's going to be, is he the kind of guy that like kind of attacks the keyboard where he's like all hunched over and you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. He is. Um, and then, so, so some of this can be, uh, um, like if he modifies his seat height a little bit, he's actually going to make it a little bit easier for him to get his hands into position. So he might be actually sitting low. Um, have him have him elevate the seat just a little bit um, and see if that prolongs his ability to tolerate the position. But ultimately, I think that what you're going to end up doing is you're going to have to get that you're going to have to get AP expansion, but but start driving like true internal rotation from from proximal to distal. Because um, like I said, chances are he's he's already pronated down into his hand if he's getting hand symptoms. Okay, great. Okay? So I've I just wanted to make sure I was kind of going after the right things. I've, I've been, he's also pretty compressed dorsal rostral as well. So yeah, I'm saying it's like, you got, you got yeah. probably if he's, if he's okay. tall. All right. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. Okay. If you, if you don't have enough movie quotes in your repertoire, you're really lost in life. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, man, that's really good. Um, crazy busy Friday today, so we're gonna dig right in to today's Q&A, which came off the Coffee and Coaches Conference call from yesterday. This came from Misha. We were contextually talking about sled drags, and then we started talking about loading parameters and how the loading parameters influence your ability to recapture movement options, or they may pro provide an element of interference to recapturing movement options, or we could look at this from a different perspective as we're trying to raise performance, we're trying to narrow that ER field into the, the IR representation for higher force production. And so um, we can manipulate these parameters um, to the effect that we are intending to influence. And so that's the thing that we want to consider. So that's the value of this Q&A um, for today, which I think you're all going to find very, very useful. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, put in the subject line, 15-minute consultation, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Don't forget, if you want to catch up on all the videos, they are up on the YouTube channel, so subscribe to that YouTube channel um, as soon as possible. Everybody have an outstanding Friday. I will see you uh, next week. Oh, hey, don't forget, podcast will be up on Sunday. And then I will see you next week. Uh, so uh, I had a question on heavy sled pushes or like sled pushes or sled pulls. Okay. As far as, so we talk about this kind of ER, IR, ER, uh, uh, yep. When you're using like a very heavy, for example, uh, load for squatting, you're really going to make the external rotation feel very small, right? right. The internal rotation is going to get much bigger. Absolutely. Is it going to be a little bit minimized with the sled if you're doing a heavy sled push because you're kind of 
it's more, I guess, ballistic. I, I don't know how to explain it. But is it going to be not as compressive because you're pushing all the way through with the extremity, or is it still the same? But you're, the same rule applies. So anytime, anytime the load is 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 uh, magnified. So so the heavier the resistance, the harder I have to push into the ground. The longer I push into the ground, which means that that you're you're going to bring the ERs in. So so think about this for a sec. So let's put 10 kilograms on a sled, okay? And we'll drag that. How big a step can you take? Pretty big, okay? Now I want you to put 100 kilos on the sled and what happens to your step length? Yes, shorter. Exactly, why does it get shorter? Because you don't have ERs anymore, mm -hmm. right? So the rule applies. So, so when you're using sled work to, to try to create relative motions, the load matters. Um, we can go back to Matt's question. So the position matters, the load matters, the extremity behavior matters, right? And so you just have to decide what it is that the intention, right? It's like, I can create more emotion with, with resistance, but it, the resistance has to be to such a degree that I still have access to compression expansion because that's what's turning is. The minute I ramp up where compression becomes the predominant behavior, I've just narrowed my cones, so to speak, into the IR representation. Okay. And then as far as, uh, there's still the difference, as far as I understand, between like a squat or a deadlift or and a sled push is that you're not, as, as you're pushing through, you're not like stopping the movement, right? You're pushing all the way through and then your foot comes off the ground. So. Right. Is there any way, like, if, for example, we're talking about like running, sprinting, or jumping, is the sled a little bit, there's more transfer to those kind of dynamic movements than a deadlift or a squat, or is it still all the same if you're going heavy? What, the, like, again, the heavier you go, the less relative motion you're going to have. Therefore, you're moving everybody towards this middle maximal representation of propulsion. Um, and then, then it comes down to the, the kinetic element of it. So the kinetics are the forces. So it's not what it looks like. It's what forces you're producing. And so, you know, when you talk about a high speed cut, we're talking about a high force representation. I can improve somebody's cutting ability with deadlifts, even though it doesn't look like a cut, I can still increase their, their force producing capability, their ability to compress and capture that position. Now, I might extend that IR duration a little bit longer than I want, but then that's why my specific stuff becomes much more important. But the, the, again, the heavier the load, the more you're taking away the ER representation in every circumstance. So, so that's the rule. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the exercise doesn't really matter. It's just it, how much are you pressing? To, to a degree, it's going to matter because again, the, the, the kinematics do matter. It's like if I'm pushing off of one foot all the time, it would behoove me to, to have a high force representation where I'm pushing off of one foot, mm -hmm. right? And then the, the orientation of the body is what, what's going to change. So again, I'm changing the direction of gravity. So a, a, uh, a step up, okay, a loaded step up, and a sled push in, on, on like low handles, same orientation of the body, right? Same orientation. Gravity's different, 
right? So I have to deal with, with, with that representation. It's like, when, when would I choose a sled push versus the upright? So if I'm working with acceleration, say on a sprinter versus top speed mechanics, I've just reoriented gravity, haven't I? You see yeah. the difference? Yeah. Yeah, so like a sled push is a lot closer to acceleration as far as force production goes than, than the upright high box step up, which is more top speed mechanics. So if I'm working on very specific mechanics with an athlete, I kind of know where I'm going to go. Right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Yeah, I'm just still trying to figure out where does like heavy training fit into a more like court and field athletes. So they need to accelerate, they need to change direction. So how do I figure out when they need to do heavy training and when they don't? That, that's, that's kind heavy of training, heavy training is when I want to take away ERs and I want to work on this middle representation where the highest forces are produced. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what heavy is for. Yeah. Because so my kind of thing is most people that I'm working with, they don't really have enough range of motion to get into good positions to accelerate, to change direction. Right. So I'm kind of getting away from the heavier training, but well, I'm still trying to figure out when can I still use it? Like when is it still useful? You can, you can still use it when, when force production is the limiting factor by for certain, right? Mm -hmm. Or if I'm trying to maintain the ability to produce force, but that's a volume based decision. So if I'm trying to increase someone's force capabilities, and if I do 10 sets of three in a deadlift, that's a lot of volume for force production. If I do two or three sets, that might be enough to maintain that force production. You see, you see the difference? So I'm making a volumetric change. So, so the strength of the stimulus is magnitude and the volume of that. And then that's what's going to drive the, the outcome, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not that you can't use you know, heavier stuff with people that you're trying to make changes with. You just have to decide how much volume can I do that doesn't interfere with what I'm trying to capture otherwise.